I'm Dr. Greg Winteregg, CEO of the Private Dentist Alliance. I want to talk to all of you students out there today who are wondering what your future is going to be like as a career in dentistry, as an assistant, as a hygienist, as a dentist, where is this profession going with the rapid increase of the DSO movement? I'm here to tell you the PDA is going to help you and I want you to become a member today. It is free. Now, why should you become a member? You're gonna get weekly video updates from me and you're gonna get regular updates of our newsletters from the Alliance on exactly what is happening and how we are going to help preserve and protect the private practice of dentistry. Now, to me, the most important advantage is you are going to get access to our job board. What is that? Our private practicing members all have access to our PDA job board, which means if they have an opening in their private practice of assistant, hygienist, doctor, front office staff, they're going to be able to post it. And you're gonna be able to check up regularly. And as our membership grows, we're gonna be covering larger and larger territories across the United States. If you are looking for a job in any position in the office of a private practice, you need to become a student member today. It is free. Go to www.privatedental.org and become a student member today. You're gonna to love your benefits. Do it now. What is up, guys? It's your boy Matt Havis back at it with the Dental Student Vibes Podcast. Today we have a really special interview for you. We had Dr. Brian Boxer-Walkler on, and today he sits down to discuss all things patient care, patient care philosophy, how to manage your patients correctly, how he handles tough conversations with his patients, how he knows when he's reached his limits clinically, and when he should refer out to somebody else who's also a specialist in the field that can provide better care suited to the patient's needs. So tune in, check out what you guys need to know from what he has to say to be the best practitioners you can be. Please let us know what you think. Follow us on Instagram at dental.student.vibes. Let us know what you think of the episode. Give us a like, comment, or review. And let's just make this best podcast we can for you. So as always, let's stay safe and vibe on. Right. So Dr. Brian, um, what are some more um, different things that you do throughout the day that where you are interacting with your colleagues, what are what are some different activities? Are you you're part of any uh, societies or help me out? Help, help me out here, Cole. Yeah, like societies or do you have any um, kind of groups that you belong to? Maybe like a Facebook group, anything else that like help you you. So you're connected with your you know kind of the TikTok world, but are there any like other groups of other doctors that you're part of that maybe help? stimulate your education, help you, you know, further your knowledge of like network field. professionally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So here in Los Angeles, I'm a part of a group called doctors who care. And it's a group I was part of the founding for doctors like over 20 years ago. And it's about 18, 19 of us. Everybody's from a different specialty. We get together about every two months and it's a great exchange of what's new in other people's fields. And we share also information about, you know, business practices, best best practices um, for that purpose as well. So that's what I would call sort of a, a networking group in a way. Um, but it's also very collegial. Um, everybody's wonderful. And, um, and I get to learn what's going on in other fields as well. And plus, if I have a patient uh, who needs, let's say, 
a, a GI doctor or a patient who has a, um, you know, rheumatology issue or, or some other issue. Like I personally now know a good specialist who I, I trust and I, I know personally who I can refer to, for example. So it also serves a purpose to help with my patient care, um, even when it goes outside of my specialty. That's going to be so efficient with, you know, trying to get the, the correct and the quality care that somebody needs. Because if you've already earned the patient's trust and then you recommend somebody, innately, they're going to be more apt to trust in them rather than just showing somebody like a stranger's mm -hmm. office. You know what I mean? We yeah. see that a lot too. Like we recommend or we, we call it recommending somebody to go to an office rather than just straight up referring because we give them options. But if we say we work well with this person and they show up or whatever, it usually has a seamless transition of care from mm -hmm. the dentist to whichever specialty we have to send to. You know, yeah, I feel... Yeah, I think that's a great um, ability to have. I just feel really fortunate because I just don't think a lot of my colleagues in at least the Los Angeles area have something like this of people with different specialties. Um, and uh, I just feel really fortunate that, you know, it's been a part of my professional and social, you know, life for the last, you know, probably, uh, you know, 22 years. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of my uh, heroes is Ben Franklin. And um, he had described in his autobiography uh, what was basically the ver earliest, one of the early versions of a mastermind group of people of different, you know, likes and interests that come together and would have discussions about topics. And that it was so important for him uh, personally in his development and also professionally to have that sort of group where you can freely discuss ideas, exchange ideas. And so that's kind of what this is. And, you know, for people that are familiar with the concept of a mastermind group, that's the value where you have, you know, multiple minds coming together for topics. And if you have an issue or a challenge, it's great to be able to discuss that with the group because you'll get different opinions, which you a lot of times didn't even think about. And then you can help formulate your own, you know, best uh, way to approach it or solve that problem. Are you talking about the Freemasons? No, no. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I don't know much about them. <laughs> National treasure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. No, but that's okay. awesome um, because the the stigma and kind of like the stereotype is, you know, it's great that you've now found these doctors and specialists that you can refer some patients to because you, you trust them, you know them. And because of you've gotten to know them and you trust them, you now like them as well, because I know there's this concept out there of it's the know, like, and trust. And it's a marketing thing. I got it from a guy's name is Barack Granat. He's a marketer. He also does a lot of dental marketing. And the whole concept is the stigma is that people want to go to somebody that they know or somebody that they like, where it should be. We go to somebody that we trust and throughout mm -hmm. that process of trust, we get to know them. And after we trust them and we know them, we're going to like them. So mm -hmm. one of those things where it's great now that you have that trust in those other medical professionals, somebody that you know and you trust and that they eventually are going to like as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's huge. And so when it comes to see back like in the dentistry realm, when we have a patient come to us, we present options to them. And we say you could, let's say they're missing a tooth, we do an implant, bridge, whatever. And, and we have different options and you obviously in a sense you want to give them the best quality care which is usually the most expensive care but it seems like in medicine like you they have a problem and then you fix that problem 
is there a way, like, so we call that case acceptance where we try to, you know, present the case and then they accept the, the plan that we present. Is there stuff like that that you do in, or is it like you have the problem and then you use your, your special technique that you've designed yourself or created to fix, like for the keratoconus? You, do you choose different procedures from each procedure that you've created to fix it? Or how does that work in terms of like case acceptance? Is it just one of those things where they present with the problem? You're like, okay, this is what we do to fix it. That's a great question. So let's, as you mentioned, talk about keratoconus, um, the cornea and the degree of keratoconus and the pattern of it. It's really different from person to person. In fact, even different from eye to eye of the same patient because it develops in one eye first a lot of times and then develops in the other eye later. So we've got different stages from one eye to the next. One's more advanced than the other. So when I'll look at a, a patient and look at their testing and review it with them, you know, I'll always explain what, what I recommend, um, you know, based on my experience and, and expertise in this area. So it'll a lot of times be a little different from one eye to the next. Um, like there was a patient, for example, uh, just today. And so one of the procedures we do in keratoconus to stop the progression or worsening is a non-invasive cross-linking procedure that I developed um, like 19 years ago called Holcomb C3R, named after Stephen Holcomb, the bobsledder. I was talking earlier, who won the gold medal because, um, you know, he had that procedure before he won the gold medal. So I named it in his honor. But that's a non-invasive cross-linking um, versus another type that's invasive that is painful, long recovery, has some definite risks versus this one. And so that's almost going to be a procedure I would recommend for anybody at any stage of keratoconus. Um, it's ideal to catch it the earliest, including in kids of usually parents that have keratoconus. But then it might get to, okay, do I recommend on top of it an, an implant? There's a little curved implant that I place called Intax that can flatten a good part of the bulge, and that helps to improve the vision. Now, one eye might be a candidate, for example, for Intax, but the other eye has less of a keratoconus and not need to have the Intax. And then, depending, there might be another procedure in my sort of keratoconus toolbox, quote-unquote, called CK, which I, I should say is not for Calvin Klein but for conductive keratoplasty, right? Use a probe with heat spots for astigmatism. And then there's even another uh, lens implant called the Visian ICL that corrects nearsightedness and astigmatism. So these are sort of the tools and I will always make the recommendation. Now, some patients, you know, can't swing financially everything at once. They may space it, they might do financing. So we definitely, um, don't shy from explaining to patients about the financing option, you know, because that makes, a, as you know, in dentistry affordable a lot of times. Um, we have an arrangement uh, where it's a few hundred dollars a month, typically with no interest for two years. So we, um, I know, and this is a business point, but I think this is a good pearl, is a lot of practices, um, dentistry or in medicine might shy away from the financing because, of course, we, as the office have to pay a financing fee, right? So some doctors like, well, I don't want to have to pay the financing fee. But if you think about it, if you're making it affordable for a patient to be able to get the care they want, even if you give up the financing fee, you know, uh, otherwise, you know, getting 100% of zero because somebody didn't do it because they didn't get the offer informed about financing, it's better to have some percentage of, of something versus 100% of zero when they don't do anything. 
So does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Definitely. I love yeah. that because you're still also at the end of the day, we're still caretakers. We're still taking care of patients and it allow. and granted you need money in order to run a practice and everything, but you're still allowing the patient to get the care they need, you know, and right. money doesn't become a factor at that point. Yeah. And I know in dentistry, you know, implants and various things, you know, it can become a big investment for somebody in, in their, in their mouth and the health and their smile. So again, I think, you know, dentists should not shy away from offering the financing for that same reason. Right. So that leads me to a follow-up question, Dr. Brian. Um, so when you're doing this case presentation to your patients, do you think that it's better that you talk about the doctor talks about the financing, or do you think it's better to have a, like a treatment coordinator talk about the financing? Yeah. So if like we were like a, practicing 1960s, 1970s medicine, it'd be like the doctor would come in and say the thing and say, and my assistant's going to talk to you about everything else and leave. Well, it's a different era. And actually many years ago, I, the feedback I was getting is patients wanted to actually hear the numbers, the, the fees from me directly. So I had no problem discussing the fees. A lot of doctors, it's out of their comfort zone. Like, I don't talk about that. You know, that's my assistant's job. But the reality is patients want to hear it from the, the care, the care provider, the doctor. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I talk about it directly. I sort of describe it almost the way I did earlier about, I always explain first the financing option and the estimate of a few hundred dollars a month and the new interest uh, because it's important for people to hear something that's affordable the first time of the options. And then I'll give them like the total fee. And, um, and then afterwards, my assistant will come in and go over the other information and describe the details of the financing and how to apply, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, I do discuss the fees myself with uh, every patient. Um, okay, that's great to know. Yeah. And uh, I just want to add to that because we were talking to someone else doing an interview and they mentioned that when the patient is sitting in, uh, in our instance, the dental chair, they actually have the e-signature, you know, to, and a card swiper for the debit card, credit card in the clinical setting. And they found that uh, the patient is more likely to accept the treatment because they're sitting in the clinical setting versus, you know, like, a, the, like you said, the classic uh, treatment coordinator room over there with the table and you sit down and you got the desk and you sit across at the table from the treatment coordinator. So it, that's an interesting point though. And I'm glad that you're very direct about that. Um, so our other question about case presentation is, is there anything in particular that you help that you think helps uh, the case acceptance? So one of the things that we always talk about are analogies. So we'll say like a dental filling is like a uh, patching a tire, right? And then when you get a crown, it's like replacing the tire. And then when you get mm -hmm. the tooth pulled and you get an implant, it's replacing the whole wheel. Is there anything like that you, you say? I'm laughing because I use you guys all the time, all the time. So when I'm talking about intacts, I explain it's a seven minute procedure. It's uh, we use numbing gel. It's not painful and you don't feel the intacts. It's like having, um, have you ever had a feeling for a cavity? And most people are like, uh-huh. And I'm like, it's like having a feeling like you have a little implant in your tooth, but you don't even know it's there. Right. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, the intacts is just like that. You don't even feel it. <laughs> I use you guys all the time in my discussions. We really do. Now, one thing I always like to hear from is 
I'm sure, you know, in your career, you've had to have difficult conversations with patients about whether if they're like the prognosis isn't as good as you hoped it would be or whatever, maybe how do you, you know, level with the patient? How do you, you know, empathize and have that difficult conversation that we all as providers inevitably have to have? I, I think tone is really important because I mean, you know, you could have the same exact words, but the tone could be five different ways and it could affect the you know person five different ways because of the tone. So I think if there's a, a really challenging situation or somebody has a, a problem, which, you know, expectations uh, for their treatment or recovery may not be what's reality. Um, like, like just today, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't see a lot of retina cases, but I had a patient come to see me who had pretty advanced diabetic retinopathy. It's, it's a kind of unusual because I'm a cornea refractive surgeon, but you know, she had seen me on the, on the doctor's TV show and had moved out here um, and came to see me. And um, she had uh, some you know, significant vision loss from her diabetes. And so I had to have like a very difficult conversation with her, um, not to remove any hope, because I think as a, as a care provider, you want to always leave some hope because you never know what's going to be coming in the future for somebody with a situation that's challenging. Um, like, I mean, I'll just give you a quick example. Like years ago, as I said, for keratoconus, cornea transplants were the main thing. And doctors were like, yeah, cornea transplant, that's all there is. And then suddenly we have you know, non-invasive cross-linking, we have intacts, we have other things that prevent transplants. So a lot of doctors, you know, have to still be open to giving hope to patients. So, so with her, I said, you know, there is some research being done with the retina with stem cells. Um, so there might be something in the future that can help restore some retinal function possibly. Uh, but I do want you to see a retina specialist to see if there is anything that could be done to at least help a little bit of the vision. Because she was thinking she's gonna, I'm, she was thinking in coming to see me that I'm gonna be able to restore her vision, and I had to, you know, be honest, but yet my tone had to be, you know, the sympathetic, caring, slow speaking, uh, low, nurturing tone because that was I knew going to be difficult information, especially because she had expectations that, you know, was we're not going to be realistic for recovering, you know, her vision. Right. That makes sense. Um, so are there any other little things that you do to the, throughout your day, maybe after the patient has had treatment or um, if, if you've done a big surgery, is there anything that you do to help the patient along? Do you give them a call at the end of the day, anything like that? I do. And I'll tell you a funny story. Um, when I started at UCLA, because I was recruited, uh, fortunately, right out of my fellowship to be in charge of the Laser Refractor Center at UCLA. And um, my chairman had looked at my card one day right after I started and my uh, cell phone was on my card. And uh, he's like, Brian, you know, this is not a good idea. You're going to get called all the time by patients. And I said, well, you know, I want to have people know that they can get in touch with me if they need to and not have to go through like a big, you know, university switchboard. And he just like, you know, scratched his head and just walked away. And I was like, this is kind of the level of care I want to have, right, to be able to have that personalized care. And so that's kind of reflective in also what I do, which ties back to your question is, 
you know, after every um, procedure at nighttime, if I'm able to, which most times I can, I will actually call the patient myself to check in on them to see how they're doing or leave a message if I can't get them. And so um, I, I think that's important because it means a lot to, to patients when the doctor or the surgeon calls and um, they're not used to it. And it, it's really special. It's something they'll always remember that the, the doctor called them on that night to check in on them. Right, exactly. That's what sets you apart from everyone else, you know, because a, a lot of surgeons don't. You true. Know, I've had, that's true. I've had surgery and they don't call. And yeah. I don't know if they, they hear from me and the way I, like my philosophy, like when we discussed, but I was like, yeah, if, if I'm going to do something, you know, I want to end it something invasive, check in. You know, it doesn't require a lot. You don't have to stay on the phone for two hours. But, you know, a little bit goes a long way like that. So they it's almost like a disappointment in a way if you don't get the call. If you had gotten it before, you know, it kind of becomes, mm -hmm. a scare, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they're not big conversations. I mean, the reality is the conversation is probably like two minutes mm -hmm. just to check in, let them know everything went great. And um, looking forward to seeing you, you know, the next day. And and it's not like they have tons and tons of questions. And it's a pretty short conversation. So people should not think that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be now like three hours on the phone talking to patients at night that I've just, you know, performed a procedure on. That, that that's not going to be the case. Right. They might be doped up, you know, on anesthesia and everything. They don't even want to talk. You know. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times, it just goes to voicemail. I just leave a message. Yeah. Which still goes yeah. a long way when they they say, oh wow. Doc called me, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it does. Yeah. It means a lot. Awesome. So Dr. Brian, as we wrap up here, uh, I got one question for you. So when you're looking back on your career and everything that you've accomplished and way back in medical school and everything, uh, what is some advice that you might give yourself right when you graduated and when you're about to go into your career? Put more money in the stock market. <laughs> there you okay. go. By 22 years ago, that would have been a good decision. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Um, I, I just, gosh, you know, I have to say, I, I'm thinking like, do I have anything I would tell my younger self? And honestly, I think fortunately, you know, I've, I've always been open-minded to, you know, getting critical feedback or, or feedback from people. So I've never been one of these people that gets defensive when somebody, you know, gives me feedback. So I try to learn from that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe early on, try to read more books, um, make more time to read more books. Cause I think, you know, books are so valuable, especially now that I've been an author of one. Um, I think there's so much we can learn from books. I, I do read books now when I can, but I think being uh, younger and reading uh, particularly nonfiction books uh, would have been probably something I would have told myself. Awesome. That's great. Great that's, advice. That's fantastic. And Dr. Brian, for our listeners out there, can you give them ways that they can, you know, follow you on social media, ways they can get in contact with you if they have any other questions, you know, they want to know about what you do during a day or how you become Dr. Cap. <laughs> so for the most fun on social media with me, definitely follow me on TikTok. And my handle is just Brian Boxer Walkler, MD. Um, a lot of times I'll just post videos that were my TikTok videos to Instagram, but really it's all coming from TikTok. So that's where you're going to have the most fun with me on social media. And then if you want to learn about my procedures and how we even present our website, just from a marketing point of view, you can go to boxerwalkler.com 
and uh, you'll be able to see how our website's organized. And um, so those that's a good start. That's a good start. Love it. And then perceptual intelligence on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, it's available literally everywhere you'll find books. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, indie books. Um, I actually narrated the audiobook myself. So if you're an audiobook person, um, that was a, that was a crazy intense three days in a little <laughs> tiny booth with no air conditioning in the summer in the valley in Los Angeles. It was oh, intense, <laughs> but I did it. And um, so it's in my own voice if you like audiobooks. So that's on um, any place you get audiobooks too. It's Great. fun. There's lots of humor in the book too. Awesome. Love it. All right, Dr. Brian, thanks so much. And vibe on. Yes, you too as well. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Really a lot of fun. I had a great time here. All right. Thanks, Dr. Brian. Okay. Bye now. All right, guys. It's your boy, Matt Havis, back at it. And that'll do it for our, our interview with Dr. Brian Boxer-Walk, where he is the celebrity eye surgeon. You could really see just by speaking to him and seeing how things went in conversation, he truly is very, very professional, and it explains why he is where he is today. So as always, Follow us on Instagram at dental.soon.vibes. Give us a like, comment, review. Let us know what you think of the episode. Let us know if there's anyone else that you guys want us to talk to. And we can either find them or we can find someone relating to a topic that you guys want to hear about. So as always, stay safe and vibe.